You may be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you that you're welcome to use and that you're welcome to keep if you don't have a Bible. We would love for you to take that home. Or if you maybe you have a Bible, but you know somebody that doesn't and they could use one. Please take those Bibles. That's what they are there for. We, like I said earlier, we love the Word of God. And we want everybody to have it accessible for themselves. So looking at Hebrews chapter 12, today we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, in case you haven't been paying attention to the world, I guess, uh, we're in the middle of the Olympics. Okay, so if you haven't missed out on any news stations or websites, we are right in the middle of the Olympics. So I thought it'd be fitting to remind you of one of the most powerful moments in Olympic history. Now, my guess is almost all of you, if not all of you, have seen the video probably dozens of times over the years. But let me just describe it to you. The scene is 1992 at the Barcelona Olympics. It's the 400-meter men's semifinal. And there's a runner from the U.S. named Derek Redmond. And he's one of the favorites in the event. So the gun goes off, the race starts, and Redmond starts really well. In fact, he's in the lead. But about halfway around this one-lap race, his hamstring tears. And he stumbles a few steps and then falls to the ground in pain. They bring a stretcher to him quickly, but Redmond says, quote, There's no way I'm getting on that stretcher. I'm going to finish my race. So Redmond gets up, and with tears streaming down his face, he begins hopping on one leg, painfully slowly down the track. Now when Derek had gone down, his dad is in the stands. And when his dad saw his son struggling to finish, he barges past security and with two guards chasing him, runs to his son's side. And he throws his arm around Derek's neck and puts his weight on his shoulder and says softly, I'm here, son. Let's finish together. For the last hundred meters, Derek hobbles down the track with his dad holding him up waving off anyone who tries to stop them from continuing, and a great cloud of 65,000 witnesses cheering them on, and Derek Redman crossed the finish line. 
As the narrator said years later in a commercial about that moment, quote, he and his father finished dead last, but he and his father finished. It's one of the most moving, if you haven't seen it and you watch it, get some tissues. I choked up just thinking about it yesterday as I was writing part of this. And this is one of the best pictures you're ever going to see about how we run the race of the Christian life. All of us, every single one of us, doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how great your life looks, how strong you think you are, all of us are too weak and too wounded to make it to the finish line alone. So the calling for each of us as followers of Christ is that when we see another brother or sister struggling along, we run to their side. Like the dad, we help them keep going and we let them know we're going to finish together. And if necessary, we hobble the rest of the way with tears streaming down our face, if that's what it takes. But we finish and we help each other make it to the finish line because we run the race of faith together. That's what our passage is about this morning in a nutshell. It's about how we run the race together. And in our passage, we're going to look at three main commands that show us how we do that, how we run together, and three ways that we are to watch over one another as we run the race. So here's your outline if you're a note taker. Three main commands. Strengthen the weak. Straighten your paths. Strive for peace and holiness. And then the three ways we watch over one another is make sure no one falls away. Make sure no one turns away, and make sure no one trades away the inheritance. Okay, so that's where we're going. But as we, as we dig in here, again, I say this every week, but it's true. We've got to remember the context. In chapter 10, yes, I'm going back there again. He told these Christians, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then after showing us what this endurance looked like, In chapter 11, with all these great heroes of the faith, he starts chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says we need need endurance to run run this race of faith and to make it all the way to the finish. To do that, He said, we need to look at Jesus. We need to keep our eyes locked on him. He's run this path of suffering for us, and he's run this path of suffering before us. He's endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at God's right hand, and now he's helping us get home as well. And if we are trusting in him, we saw later in chapter 12, we know that the trials we face are merely God's fatherly discipline, training us for endurance to finish the race. And because we know that Jesus has prepared the way home for us and is now using the way to prepare us for home, we are to respond and run this race a certain way. That's what the therefore in verse 12 tells us. In light of all that, therefore, here's how you run. So how should we run? Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands 
and strengthen your weak knees. Okay, now there's really only one command here. There's no word lift in the original. It's, it, the one command is strengthen. Strengthen the drooping hands, strengthen the weak knees. Now when you see someone's hands drooping, or you just see body language, it looks kind of hunched over and sagging, what does that typically tell us? It tells us, man, that guy looks discouraged. They are dispirited, disheartened. Or when you see someone's knees who look weak or they're knocking, we know that that means they're afraid. They're anxious. So what should we do when we come across this? When that's the case, when we look and we see anxious hearts and we see weak knees and drooping hands, we should strengthen them, it says. Now hopefully when I just read verse 12, your ears perked up and you said, hey, wait a minute. I think I heard that earlier in the service. Isn't that, wasn't that in Isaiah 35? If so, you're right. You can stop by and uh, see John afterwards to collect your prize. Sorry, John. Um, when you read that, you hear that, you're like, wait a minute, that's familiar. So the question is, okay, if that's where he's pulling us from, why is that verse, why would that be on the writer's mind here? Why is he writing us this letter and all of a sudden Isaiah 35 pops into his mind and he thinks, ah, this is the right spot. Well, remember, I said this very briefly when we read it, but Isaiah 35 is this beautiful passage that talks about the return of God's people from exile to Zion, to the city of God. It's one of these great passages in the Old Testament that looks forward to the celebration that awaits the people of God when our redemption is complete and we are finally home as Jesus makes all things new. It talks about how the, that long and lonely wilderness we walk through will finally be glad and the hard barren desert will blossom and rejoice with joy and singing. We will see the glory of the Lord. All this brokenness will be bound up. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, the mute will sing. And the capper of the whole verse, or the whole chapter, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy. Don't miss that. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In other words, that's what's at the finish line. That's where our race is headed, friends. Everlasting joy in the city of God. So the writer is saying, hey, that's, that's what's up ahead. Remember, that's where the race is going. So in light of that reality, what does Isaiah tell them? Because that's all true. He says, strengthen the weak knees. And make firm the feeble knees. And then in the very next verse, in Isaiah 35, he tells us, what does that mean? How do you do that? Is there like a workout regimen? How do I strengthen the weak hands and knees? He tells us. Isaiah 35 said, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That's how you do it. Now notice two things about these verses. First, he's not telling them to strengthen their own hands and knees. Do you catch that? See, I think we read this really quickly and we think, okay, when my knees are weak and my hands are 
feeble. I'm going to keep mixing those words up, but you know what I'm saying. When, when we're not feeling it, okay, i got to tend to this. But he doesn't say to strengthen their own hands and knees. How do we know? Well, because in Isaiah 35, he says, strengthen those things by saying to those who have an anxious heart. You strengthen by speaking. You strengthen by saying things that are true. You strengthen someone else. So the command to strengthen what is weak is not a command for us to strengthen ourselves alone, but to strengthen others, specifically those who have an anxious heart. The second thing to notice here is, well, how do we do that? By telling those who are anxious, your God will come. By telling them he's going to come and he's going to make right what is wrong. He's going to come and every evil will be repaid and you will have your reward. He will come and save you. That's how he says you strengthen weak and fearful saints. So when our fellow Christians are struggling, when we're anxious and afraid, we point them to the hope we have in Jesus. We don't just tell them, it'll be okay. I'm sure you'll get through this. We don't feed them platitudes. We don't just just give them a pat on the back. We remind them that their God is coming. That this is not all there is. And when he comes, he's going to fix everything that's broken. And he will bring perfect justice against every wrong done to you. And he will show every suffering experienced by his people here to be more than worth it compared to the reward he's bringing with him. He will come and save all those who trust and treasure him. Friends, we need to remind each other often that Jesus is coming back. Like, it's not a piece of information that once acquired, that's, that's it. Like, okay, I heard that once and I know it's filed away. We need to hear it again and again and again and again because it shapes everything that we think about reality. I need to be consciously reminded, Jesus is coming back. What you see is not all there is. What you see is not how it will always be. The king will come, and when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. We need to remember that, that he has not only defeated sin and death, but he's coming back for his bride. We're just getting started, friends. If you think this is all there is to being a Christian, oh, this is not even the preface to the story. We're just getting started, and it's so much better. And as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he comes back, he'll gather us together and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. With what words? The words he just said, that Jesus is coming back for us. So when we're anxious, and you say, but but I'm anxious about work. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, I'm anxious about family. Okay, when you're anxious about anything, we remember that Jesus is coming back. That's why it matters that he wondrously reigneth over all things because I know that when the king who reigns over all things comes back, he can fix all this and he's fixing it right now. So when we're anxious and barely hobbling along, we need to be reminded by one another that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. And we will be at home with him in a new earth in which righteousness dwells and in which the glory of the Lord covers the earth as waters cover the sea. We need to say that to each other. 
We need to sing that to each other on Sundays. We need to pray that with each other. When people are weak and worried, remind them, keep going, friend. Jesus is coming. We're almost home, and I'll help you get there. We'll finish the race together. Okay, so that's the first way we run the race together, is we strengthen the weak. The second way we, we run the race together is we straighten the paths. Verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So here he's doing a similar thing. Just like the last verse, he was plucking that out of Isaiah 35. This one is taken from an Old Testament text as well. Here he quotes from Proverbs 4. And I want you to listen to this verse in context in Proverbs 4 and see how well it fits. Like it's no wonder this pops into his mind. Proverbs 4, starting in verse 25. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder, same word, make straight the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So what does he mean to straighten our paths here? What's he talking about? He means that we don't get distracted and take our eyes off the goal. We keep looking to Jesus. We keep looking to the reward. We focus on him because here's the reality. Your gaze determines where you go. It's It's just a fact. Your gaze determines where you go. If your eyes are fixed on something, you're gonna run towards that. Don't kid yourself and think that you can spend all your time looking at and fixing your eyes on the comforts of this earth all the while think you're running hard towards Jesus. That's not how it works. We run towards what we look at. So the question we all have to ask this morning is, where am I looking? Where is your gaze fixed this morning? What are the things, what are the hopes, what are the realities that you find yourself most often looking to and looking at? Where are your eyes drifting toward other pursuits and desires besides his kingdom and his righteousness? Now, it's no coincidence in Proverbs 4 that that he started by where we look. Right? He's eventually going to say, make your path straight. But he says, first, make your gaze straight. He starts by admonishing us to look straight ahead. Then he says, make your path straight and don't swerve. Because your gaze determines where you go. And he says, keep running straight. Don't wander off course. Don't leave this path. Why is he so adamant? Well, as Jesus told us, because the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. In other words, don't take a detour in life because you think you found a shortcut or you found an easier way than following Jesus. When you bump into things and realize, man, following Jesus is sometimes hard. Oh, but over here, if if I would just ignore this part of his teaching, that would really smooth things out. That seems a little bit of an easier path. He says, don't do that. Those detours are detours to destruction. You want to stay on the path that leads to life. 
Keep running straight toward Jesus. Make a beeline to him. Now this word make straight, it not only means literally don't turn right or left, it can also mean make level, make smooth your path. In other words, clear the way of rocks and stones. If you're running, you want to get rid of anything that's going to make you stumble, anything that's going to trip you up from following Christ. Make your way as straight and as smooth as possible. But again, don't just do it for yourself. See, when the author of Hebrews quotes this from Proverbs, he changes all the words from singular to plural. In Proverbs, if you're reading through the book, this is the advice of a father to a son. So it's singular. But the author of Hebrews, he's speaking to a church. And so, you say, well, why does that matter? It matters because it's easy for us to read this this way. You, individual Christian, make straight paths for your individual feet. That's not what it is. It's really, y'all Christians, make straight paths for y'all's feet. He pluralizes all of it. He says, no, 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 no. This isn't like an individual you person do this. It's you guys do this and do this for one another. This command to straighten the path extends beyond just my own personal race. And it tells me to help those around me. Help clear away obstacles in their way. Pointing them straight to the finish line. When you see something like, that's going to be a stumbling block. That's going to trip up this brother or sister. I need to help them get that out of the way. Or when I see them going off course, we're like those obnoxious people outside the tax places with those spinny signs saying, this way, this way, that's where you want to go. Don't go that way. That's the way to Jesus. That's what we do for one another as we remove obstacles and we point the way because we're running the race with each other. And who are we doing that for? With our fellow church members. That's one of the things that we do as fellow church members is we're pointers and we're levelers. We say, let me help make this way straight and smooth for you as much as I can. So strengthen the weak, straighten the path, and third, strive for peace and holiness. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So two things he says we're going after. Peace and holiness. And notice how intensely we go after these things. We strive after them. That's, that's not a, a lazy, easygoing kind of word. Other translations say pursue, work at, make every effort. In other words, peace and holiness are not things we should expect to just happen to us. If you're a Christian and you think, well, just by the passage of time, the longer I'm a Christian, surely peace will work its way into my life. Holiness will just kind of happen. That's not what this says. It says strive for them. We work hard for them. We pursue them with everything we've got. And what are the two things we strive after? Peace and holiness. Let's look at those. First, we are to strive for peace with everyone. Let that just sink in a moment. Like, I don't know if you're like me, but right away you want to try to find a qualification. You want to try to find a way to soften that. To Well, there's got to be an exception, right? I mean, strive, which I just said, 
work like crazy, do everything you can, give it all you've got, strive for peace with everyone. Have you guys met the people in our world? Don't look to your right or left right now, but yeah, those people too. We are to strive for peace with everyone. This is such a much needed word in our day. There are too many people, and indeed, sadly, too many Christians who were all too ready for a fight. Itching for an argument. Constantly needing to have an enemy to attack and belittle and defend against. Now at times we can try to make it sound really spiritual, like, like, like oh, just defending the truth. We've got to do that, right? And something to that effect. And there's a place for that. But the truth is that much of the fighting in our world simply comes down to the fact that I have a greater desire for my preference or my point of view than I do for peace. If I've got to choose peace or getting my preference, I choose my preference. If I've got to choose peace or my point of view, I choose my point of view. Now as Christians, we are engaged in a war. Absolutely. But it's not with flesh and blood. And we are in a fight. But it's not with people. It's with our own sin and unbelief. Do you remember verse 4? Look, scan up your eyes to Hebrews 12, 4. Our struggle is against who? No, no, not who. What? Against sin. Yet all too often we find ourselves flipping these around so that we wage war with people and make peace with our sin. It ought not be so. That impulse to fight, that's a good one. It's a godly one. Fight against your sin. Kill it. Put it to death. It's not meant to be aimed at other people. It's meant to be aimed at our sin and unbelief. Why? Why this emphasis on peace? Why would we strive for peace? We strive for peace with others because Jesus made peace with us. We gave him every reason to be angry. Every reason to seek revenge, to put us in our place, show us how wrong we were. Because of our sin, God could have rightly just wiped us out and he could have said he was simply defending the truth against our lies. He was standing up for righteousness against our wickedness. He was right and we were wrong. He could have waged war against us sinners and utterly destroyed us in his wrath. He could have. But do you know what he did instead? He gave us his son. To sinful, stubborn, selfish sinners, God gave his perfect, beloved son. And in that son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what that cross is. It's peace. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us and for our sins. In our place, condemned, he stood. We should have been out there. But Jesus said, I'll go instead. And he sealed our pardon with his blood. 
Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith in that, in that sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, since we've been justified by faith, guess what we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that now, wonder of wonders, because of Jesus, instead of declaring war against us, do you know what God declares? Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Can you imagine? We were all in this little village where the world's greatest superpower was just sweeping through with no chance. I mean, we don't even have any weapons to defend ourselves with. We've got nothing. We're just sitting ducks waiting to get what's rightly ours because we're part of the rebellion We rose up against the superpower and said, oh yeah, we'll show you. And they said, no, you won't. And so the superpower is sweeping through. We've got nothing to stop it. And now here comes a messenger. And instead of saying, prepare for doom, it says, it's over. It is finished. Your warfare is ended. Your rebellion is pardoned. You are no longer enemies of the king. In fact, You are sons and daughters. He's welcomed you. He hasn't just forgiven your rebellion. He's welcomed you in and made you his own. This is the good news, friends. We have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we seek peace with others. And not just the people we like or the people we agree with, but with everyone. In other words, we are quick to listen And slow to speak. Our love covers a multitude of their offenses. Instead of being short-tempered, we are slow to anger. We would rather be wronged than dishonor the name of Jesus. We avoid unnecessary fights, foolish controversies, and pointless arguments. And we constantly seek to resolve conflict and make peace. In fact, we are on a hair trigger for reconciliation. Always ready for it. Someone moves towards us in the lightest. We're like, okay, let's, let's, let's reconcile. Now, if you're anything like me, there's a part of you that says, yes, that's what I want. I want to do that. But do you know about this person? Do you know about this situation? What about when peace isn't possible? You've done all you can. Truly. But there's still no peace. That's why I love how real Romans 12, 18 is. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Double, du- double statements there. If possible, so far as it depends on you, meaning you've done everything you can, and I mean everything, you have driven after peace. If you give it all you've got, that's all you're called to do. You can leave the rest to God. But before you're ready to say, I've done all I can, you must strive for peace. So a key part of enduring in the race of faith is striving for peace with everyone. Now the second thing we strive for, it says, is holiness. Our God said, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we devote ourselves to growing in holiness. In other words, we want to look more and more like our older brother Jesus. 
We want the way we talk, the way we think, the things we love, the way we treat people to increasingly reflect our Savior. We want his Holy Spirit to continually bear more and more fruit in our lives. We want to sin less and hate sin more. And this striving after holiness, friends, this this isn't an optional extra to the Christian life. It's not like the advanced degree. That only if, well, yeah, when you get everything together, he says it's essential. Did you catch that? Verse 14 says there's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, if that's not there, you don't see him. Now let's be clear about two things here. We are not saved by our holiness. We are saved by Jesus. But secondly, let's be clear that if we are truly saved by Jesus, we will grow in holiness. We will change. As Jesus himself said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. So are you striving after holiness this morning? Are you striving after holiness? Again, remember what that striving means. Not waiting around, hoping it takes root, just like, oh, I mean, I hope tomorrow I wake up and I'm more holy. Are you actively, earnestly striving after holiness? In fact, what is one practical step you can take to go hard after holiness? One thing. Might be a good one to talk about after the service with a friend, a spouse. What's one practical step you can take to go hard after holiness? And second, how can we help one another strive for holiness? Now notice one last thing here about what we strive after. We don't pursue peace at the expense of holiness. Nor do we prize holiness above peace. These two pursuits are not at odds with each other. Pursuing peace with one another doesn't mean we go soft on sin or don't care about truth. And pursuing holiness doesn't mean that we leave a string of broken relationships in our wake. We go as hard as we can after both. Because true holiness isn't possible without striving for peace with others. And true peace with others only comes through striving to grow in holiness. So let's strive after both together. Which brings us to verse 15. So far we've seen the three main commands. We've seen strengthen the weak, straighten the paths, strive for peace and holiness. Now in these last three verses, he gives us three ways we are to look out for each other as we run the race. Now where where am I getting this idea of looking out for each other? Well look at verse 15. He starts it off by saying, see to it. That word means to to oversee, to be responsible for others, to look after them and watch out for them. And then he gives us three ways to do that. But notice again that these commands are community commands. Verse 15, see to it that no one, again in verse 15, that no root of bitterness. Verse 16, that no one is. These are ways we look out for one another as we run the race. We are to make sure that no one falls away, turns away, or trades away their inheritance. So let's look very briefly at each of those. First, make sure no one falls away. Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, failing to obtain the grace of God is the same thing we talked about 
all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1. There it says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now if you remember back in chapter 4, there the people failed to reach it because of unbelief. So our charge here, in other words, is that we are each responsible to make sure that none of us fails to reach the finish line. We are to do everything we can to help each other keep believing. And I I hope that we increasingly feel that. I love that I see that more and more in our body. I see people taking a vested interest in one another's faith. Because that's what we're called to do. There's a, a book I'm reading that talks about how too much we suffer from this idea of spiritual orphan that we enter into the church and we act like someone who has no family. And if you've ever read about or encountered true orphans who don't have a family, they learn to look out for themselves and themselves alone. So we come into the church singing, I want to grow. I want to grow. I hope I can get what I need. I hope I can get satisfied. I hope I get the opportunities and the, the, the training and the teaching and the, the music and the worship and the prayer. I hope I get what I need with nary a thought to what's going on around them. Because they're not thinking family. But if you grow up in a family, you're taught and you learn not just to seek what's good for you, but what's good for the family. Is everybody getting their needs met? Is everybody getting what they need in order to grow and flourish? One of the very early Greek commentators said the picture in verse 15 is of a band of travelers on a long journey together. He said that they would go on these long journeys. Picture, like I think our context, picture the, the wagon trails. There's like lots of caravans of, of wagons going together. And periodically, these bands of travelers needed to stop, make sure that everybody's still there, still accounted for. Because they didn't want anyone to fall away and not make it to the destination. Friends, that's what the church is. We are a band of travelers a pilgrim people on our way to Zion. And as a church family, we need to make sure that we're all still here and still doing okay. In fact, that's what church membership is. It's a list so that we know who's in our band of travelers. When we're checking to make sure that people are okay and they haven't fallen off the trail somewhere, that's how we know who to look for, who to watch out for, who to check up on. We want each of us to make it home, so we need to look after one another's faith so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So one question for you, if you're here and you're not a member of of a church, who's checking up on you? Who's making sure that you're still there? That you're still on the path to Zion? Are you traveling as an orphan? Or do you have a church family who's constantly checking to make sure, yep, still here, okay who's encouraging you along the way, who's putting their arms around you saying, hey, we're getting to the finish line together. If you're not a member of a church, let me encourage you, God didn't intend for you to make this trip alone. Not to mention, this is another reason why you say, why would we do small groups? This is why. It's another chance for us to say, hey, how are we all doing? Are you still trusting Jesus? What's it looking like in your life? Where where do you need an arm around you? Where do you need encouragement? Where do do you need prayer? How can I help you get home? All right, so that's the first way. We 
Make sure no one falls away. Second way we look out for one another is we make sure no one turns away. Verse 15 again. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now often we use, I've heard this verse used to say, okay, here's a verse that says you shouldn't be bitter towards other people. And you shouldn't. But that's not what this is saying. He's referring here to something Moses said in Deuteronomy 29. I want you to turn with me to this one. Look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. And I want you to listen to what Moses warned the people about as they journeyed among peoples who worshipped idols and false gods. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, he says this. He says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So, this root of bitterness here, it's not just talking about your personal animosity towards someone else. It's, it's talking about someone whose heart turns away from the Lord to serve other gods. And not just that, even when this person hears God's word, he tells himself, he'll be fine. Even though he knows his heart is stubborn and he's living his own ways. He thinks he's safe despite his sin. I mean, after all, he's still going to church. Deuteronomy 29 says twice, he's still among them. This is not an outsider. This is someone on the inside whose heart has turned away. He's still hearing God's word proclaimed. He just ignores it and thinks, doesn't apply to me. His heart has turned away from God, and yet he thinks he's still safe because he thinks he's still part of the people of God. Because his, he's physically present, but his heart is absent. Hebrews 12 says, make sure no one goes this route. Make sure no root of bitterness like this springs up. Not just for their sake, but notice that it doesn't just impact that person. Verse 15 says this root causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. The problem is that this root of bitterness is like a weed. Left alone, it will quickly spread and tangle up good plants and ruin those as well. That's why we have to be in each other's lives to make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Finally, we are to make sure that no one trades away their inheritance. Look at verse 16. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So here Esau is the poster boy for trading away something valuable for a temporary desire. He is, in this context, you know the story, won't go into it, but he is the heir. He's the firstborn, the one to whom all the land and the blessings and the promises should be passed down to from his father Isaac. But Esau doesn't consider it all that important or valuable. 
How do we know? Because one day he comes home from hunting and he's so starving, he's willing to trade his birthright for a simple bowl of stew. All his inheritance for a single meal. Esau is held up here as an example of the opposite of Hebrews 11. Instead of enduring faith, remember this is what we saw in all those saints in chapter 11. We saw enduring faith that looks to the unseen reward that's coming. Esau looks only to what he can see right in front of him in the moment. He throws away all his future blessings for momentary satisfaction. This is the connection to when it talks about unholy, or it's, it's actually the word is profane, meaning he doesn't think the things of God are that significant or important or valuable or esteemable. Instead, he thinks they're, ah, they can be easily discarded if it'll get me something in the moment. That's what sexual immorality is. It's losing sight of the big picture and think, oh, this momentary satisfaction. Now, it says later he regretted his decision, but it was too late. He couldn't change it. Verse 17 says, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now this, this can be confusing, so I want to I be very clear here. This is important. What is the it that Esau sought with tears? It can look like one thing here, the way it's translated, a little funny. But if you read it closely, what does he desire He desires to inherit the blessing. The it wasn't repentance. The it was the blessing. When it says he found no chance to repent, the problem was not that Esau really, really wanted to repent, but he wasn't allowed to. The problem was that his heart was so far gone, he didn't want to repent. You say, well, yes, he did. He he, He sought it with tears. No, he sought the blessing with tears. See, this is the difference between regret and repentance. Esau's crying not because he's sorry over his sin. There's nothing in the Bible that gives any indication that he later said, I should not have done that. He's crying because he's sorry about the consequences. When he realizes, you mean I, I won't get it after all? Yeah, I, I know I did that, but, like, but I thought I'd still, somehow I could still get it, right? He says, no. He's crying Because he's sorry about the consequences. And this is a call for us to be there for one another. We should be there to cry together as we confess our sins. So that we won't one day have to cry together over the consequences of trading away our blessing for temporary pleasures. Crying over sin is a good thing. That's not what Esau does. Esau shows us he's just sorry that he didn't get the thing he wanted. He's not sorry that he did what he did. So make sure no one trades away their inheritance for a momentary satisfaction. I sent an article this week that I hope you got a chance to read. If not, it's in the e-news. It connects to this passage so well. The title of the article was simply, Help Someone Home to Heaven. And let me close with a quote from it that I think sums up our text. He said, we are too weak to make it to heaven alone. This is why God gives us one another. Surround yourself with people who help you toward heaven. 
and love others by doing the same for them. In other words, friends, let's run the race together. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this band of travelers that you've assembled here called Chapelwood. I pray that you would help us be this kind of family, that we would care for one another, we would take vested interest in each other, that we would be concerned about the outcome of one another's faith. That our deepest desire is that each and every one of us makes it across that finish line and home to heaven. Lord, give us patience, give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us tact. But above all, give us desire to do this work. And I pray that you would bear much fruit and that we would reap an abundant harvest by loving one another this way. Would you give us all that we need to make it home? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.